Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. George Cotherley runs a medical and pharmaceuticals business and was born in Stanley internment camp in 1942 during the Japanese military occupation. He's previously been on the programme to talk about when he returned to Hong Kong in the early 1960s and made it his home. George Cotherley is the sixth generation of his family in China and his mother's family was first in China in 1801. Both on my mother's side and on my father's side, I have long connections uh, with, with Hong Kong. My maternal grandmother uh, came from the Heard family, um, which was a prominent American family, which the first Heard that is recorded arrived up the Pearl River Estuary in Wampoa in 1801. And he was about 2021, 20, and he was what was called a supercargo. And the supercargo was the person who had to find goods to ship to China um, and when they got to China, he had to sell the goods. And then when the goods were sold, he had to find goods in China, which were saleable back in America, and load the ship up with those and then go back and then do the reverse back in America. And so at a very young age, he was, he was a very important person in the whole China trade process. And uh, he came out, he, they came via Calcutta. And in Calcutta, he picked up some tropical disease, but battled on and got here. But shortly after he arrived here, he died. Um, and that was that. That was the end of him. But he had a younger brother. Well, he had, in fact, he had two younger brothers. Uh, but his youngest brother was Augustine Hurd, who was already a, a well-reputed businessman doing business in the West Indies and places closer to America. And then he started to come out to Hong Kong or east to China. And I think the first time he came out was 1809. And then he came out periodically after that. And he not only was a supercargo, but he was a qualified ship's captain. And he was a very good ship's captain. And he actually did both roles uh, when, he, when, when he came out here. And he came out here a number of times. We don't have a record of exactly how many times. But eventually, uh, he became a partner in the biggest American trading company, uh, Russell & Company. And uh, with that, he then came, because uh, they based themselves in Macau, and then they used to go up to Canton to do the actual trading. And he came out in 1830 and stayed until 1834 when ill health uh, drove him back uh, to America. But he continued on to be a partner in Russell and Company and help at the U.S. end with them. But towards the end of the 1830s, the partners in Russell and Company had some disputes. And some of the disaffected partners asked Augustine Hurd if he would help finance a new company. And this story is told in a book by Tim Sturgis called Rivalry in Canton, um, and it covers this dispute and the establishment of Augustine Hurd and Company, which is the company he set up. That was established in 1840, and uh, he came in 1841 together with his eldest nephew, his brother George Hurd, who was the middle brother of the three, uh, Daniel, the first one who came out in 1801, was the eldest, then there was George, and then there was Augustine. And George Heard had four sons. In fact, he had more than that, I think. Uh, but he had four sons from one of his wives. And one by one, they came out and, and worked in the company. But the first one, John, uh, who was actually my great-great-great-grandfather, he came out with Uncle Augustine um, at the age of 17. 
and they went to Canton and he worked there. He was not paid during his whole time there. Uh, he was he was given his board and lodging and he was given whatever money he needed to do things, but it was a very cloistered existence that, that, that you lived there. But again, ill health dogged Augustine Hurd and in 1844-1845 uh, he decided he had to go back uh, to America. And the partners in Augustine Heard were much more senior than, than John. They, they were ex-partners um, from Russell and Company. Um, and in fact, one of them had a very good relationship with Jardines. And when Jardines had to stop trading during the Opium War, they gave the authority for him to trade uh, not, on the, on, not just on their behalf, but all the profits went to Augustine Heard and Company. The young uh, John Heard, and when uh, his uncle went back, he was only 21, was actually given the leadership of the company over the other two partners. So he became the head of the company at the age of 21. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. And his uncle, when he, he left, uh, I, I forget the details, but his uncle gave him a huge sum of money. And he was absolutely flabbergasted because he you know, didn't expect to earn anything during those four years. And, and he said at the age of 21, he was actually relatively rich. He had several thousand pounds um, of his own, um, plus the leadership of the company and, and uh, all the wealth that that brought to the family as a whole. And so John went back to America, he went to Europe. He was extremely well connected. He was obviously a networker. And on his various trips to Europe, I think during the period that he was doing the China trade actively in China, he went back a couple of times. And being a trader, of course, he was a free trader. And he, when he went to the UK, he was intru- introduced to Cobden and Bright, who were two prominent free traders there. When he was in Rome, he lived next door to the Duke of Wellington, who he <laughs> met and described as a very ordinary, commonplace man. Um, in other words, someone without any airs and graces. And then later on, he lived in the same apartment block uh, in Naples where William Makepeace Thackeray lived. And Thackeray was writing one of his novels. And when he finished the chapter, he used to call John Hurd up and say, uh, come on, I finished the chapter, uh, let me read it to you. Um, and, he, and he would read his chapters to him and ask for his comments. So he was, uh, despite having had no education beyond 17, he was obviously a very intellectual young man and a very personable young man. So he managed the business until 1861. But during that time, his three other brothers came out uh, one by one and they all had different roles in the business. And when others went back on long leave because they would go back for one or two years, um, then someone else took over the leadership of the, of the business. In the mid-1850s, 1856, the situation in Canton got quite tense and it was no longer desirable to live there. So they moved their business to, well, they already had a branch in Hong Kong, but they moved the headquarters to Hong Kong. They kept a branch in, in Canton and they had expanded to other cities in China. They had a branch in Macau. They had a lot of agencies throughout China. So they continued to be, be very active indeed. And in, in Hong Kong, they had an office up on Cane Road. And then in the late 1860s, after John had left, they decided they needed bigger offices. And they negotiated with the government and they obtained uh, the site, which is where what's usually known as the French Mission Building is. 
and they actually built that building which stands today that's uh, that's uh, basically the building that they built it's significantly modified over the years but the core of that building is what they originally built what, uh, and then the french mission came in afterwards well, well yeah well, what was interesting was herden company went bankrupt in 1875 for various reasons some of it was their own fault some of it was other people's fault and at that time the herds were the honorary russian consuls for hong kong and the Russian consuls uh, took the building over, so it became the Russian consulate for a period. And then Belulos bought it, who was one of the prominent businessmen here. And then it became, after that, it became the French mission. It served a number of times as the Supreme Court, usually after the Second World War and after the First World War, before the Supreme Court was refurbished again. It was the district court. I actually attended a trial there. Um, And then it became the government information services. Then it became the Court of Final Appeal. So it's had a a long and varied history. And so they they built it, uh, and the the lower floor, lower and the the second floor, because I think there were three or four floors, were their offices. And then the higher floors were their residence, where they lived. I think it's amazing. I mean, my brother has done some um, family research on our families, both both in Britain and Germany, but I don't think he's quite got back to 1801 yet. Now, but you've been helped to a certain extent by the... There's an, a number of herd archives. In, is it in a university in America? Yeah, there's, well, there's, there's basically one herd archive. When the herds went bankrupt, Jardines were appointed as the liquidators, and Jardines, uh, I think, basically acquired all the business records. And once they finished the liquidation, they sent them, interestingly, to Yale University. And so there was an archive in Yale University. And I think the family records, because the Herds were prolific letter writers, and their letters were not just only about business, but they were observations of what went on here and in China, and because they, they, they were... In, in a way, they were very alive to the politics, which was good for business because if you knew what the politics were, you knew where to go and how to do your business. And those were lodged in Harvard because several members of the family went to Harvard. And so there was an archive in both places. And then Harvard did a deal with Yale where they got a permanent loan of the rest of the archive. So it's all now in Harvard in the Baker Library, which is part of the Harvard Business School. I think that's wonderful that you can look back at your heritage on the maternal side right back to 1801 and as you say these letters I mean members of of my family have had been to the archives so sometime in the early 2000s I went and spent three days there all the material has been microfilmed and the majority of it is or almost all of it is actually handwritten because they they copied out their letters and they had to do it in two copies so the letter that was sent and they had to retain a copy so there was a lot of handwriting that went on and a big waste of time but but that's how you did business then Uh, but the letters are very difficult to read I spent three days trying Um, fortunately there are four pieces of material including over 200 pages I think nearly 300 pages of an autobiography written by John Hurd which are typewritten and that's been my main reference point because it's much easier to sort of uh, see the family history from that. He wrote a very good overview of the of, of, of the family operations. But there are a number of people who have used the archive. Elizabeth Sin from Hong Kong University used it for her book Pacific Crossings because the herds were a major transporter of China labor to America. And I was somewhat concerned about 
what she found out about the herds and, and she wrote this book and she, she did a presentation to the Royal Asiatic Society Hong Kong and so I went, I went to that and uh, she said look she said it's a very big book she said don't bother to read it all look in the index I've got many references to the herds all you need to read is, is about the herds she said by the way they were very popular because they transported uh, the labour in, in, in the most healthy way of anyone so I, I was a little bit relieved about that that uh, they were humanitarian even though it was not a very humanitarian thing to do to transport labour to the Californian gold fields but I mean fortunately there's this autobiography and that I think is probably quite useful for researchers because it then they can then see where they need to go hopefully one day there'll be a better technology and we'll, perhaps we'll be able to uh, make it more accessible. In 1801, why would your... Uh, it would have been a great-great-great-great-uncle of oh, yours, course, yes. yes. Yeah. Why, uh, Daniel Hurd, why did he decide, uh, OK, I'm going to start trading with China? As, as they say, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. And I've not found the answer to it because they're trading uh, up until then. His grandfather, John Hurd, was the first prominent businessman in the family. And John Hurd had a number of businesses, including a lot of trading business. But that was mostly with the Caribbean and Latin America. They were based in Ipswich, but they knew Boston. And they so must is it Ipswich, Massachusetts? Is right. it? Yes, yes, yes. And I suppose they must have decided, well, other American companies are trading with China. Why don't we try a hand at it? And now the geography, when you're starting in the 1800s, and so you've got Daniel Hurd, as you say, in 1801, and then gradually the other younger relatives over the next couple of decades. How would they, what would their route have been? I think they would come from Boston and down under Africa and then through that way because if you went the Southern American route, you got the Cape of Good Hope, which has not much hope when you're a sailor. The wind conditions, etc., were, were really terrible. Um, so I think everyone used the, the South African route and then you came up uh, through the Indian Ocean and through Indonesia and, and uh, up that way. Oh, interesting. But in terms of sailing techniques, I mean, you've got um, pre-steam, you then have what were called clippers. That's right. And they, they really, they went into clip. They, they, did, yes. they actually started to speed things up. Yes, they were very fast, but of course, always depended on the wind. So if the winds were good, they were faster. If the winds weren't good, they were slower. But anyway... As long as everyone used them, that was a level playing field. But it's interesting how many were involved because I was reading a quote from John Hurd about one, he said one day he and his uncle Augustine were buying tea to send back to America. And he said the teas they bought in one morning required 14 ships to ship them back to America. <laughs> and uh, so, so the scale was pretty big. I mean, the ships were not that big, I suppose. So maybe you didn't have too many trunks of tea. But fourteen. You, so, so logistics were obviously very important. You had to know where to get the ships because they didn't own all the ships. So, oh, so they would lease the ships. Yes, yes, yes. You 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 charter ships, I guess, in, the, in in those days. The ships they owned were really later on when they did the shipping, coastal shipping. Uh, they shipped rice from Thailand and from Taiwan and then up the Yangtze. So that, that's where they own ships and they had their own ship owning. But to sending back to America, I think, I think they were all ships that they leased. So they'd be buying tea from China. What, what were the products that they were taking from China in the early days? What they took from China basically was tea and silk. Those are the main things they took from China. From America, uh, they shipped cotton uh, from the south. That was one of their main things. But then, of course, in Hong Kong... They had a substantial business, uh, which was a which was a local business. So, the, for instance, they owned an insurance agency because uh, that was very important to insure your products. They owned an ironworks, the novelty ironworks, which, among other things, 
made some cannons for the fort in Macau. Then they owned another metal business, and then they owned another interesting business called the Wan Chai Bakery, which I guess was a precursor of Maria's Bakery. <laughs> oh, wow. So, but it's very diverse. Oh, very, very, very diverse, yes. And there were some other businesses that they were in. Um, I mean, you're an entrepreneur. So, I mean, was this idea of let's dip in several things in case anything goes belly up? Well, I think, yes, diversity, I'm sure. And, and the fact that, yes, when you see a business opportunity, you take it. And, and I say to people that really what I do now is not much different in principle from what they did back then. Basically, what they said was, what have we got in America? or elsewhere because they went to Thailand to find rice, they went to uh, Taiwan to find rice, uh, they went to India to find opium. Uh, they said, you know, what can we find that we can sell in China? And in China, what can we find that we can sell back in Europe and America? Because they did business with Britain and, and Europe. And in a way, that's what I do now. I import products into Hong Kong and China, and I manufacture in China and sell elsewhere. So you know, in principle, for all those years, we've been doing exactly the same thing, different products uh, as technology has gone up and different things. But really, what Hong Kong has been built on and continues to be built on is that basic principle. And, and that's, I think, what Hong Kong will continue doing, uh, irrespective of innovation and technology. And this is what we're good at, and we know how to do this business. The herds were also involved in opium, so were they buying it then to resell in Hong Kong or out of India? Well, I presume it must have been sold in Hong Kong as well. I like to think that we weren't bad opium traders <laughs> <laughs> and that we got into it because we handled the Jardine business, so I blame Jardines. <laughs> yes, can you tell me about that? Because the herds go basically from, in terms of their trading, from 1801 to mid-1870s right. and then uh, they go bankrupt. But their real middlemen, they're really highly influential for some of the other big names that are within yes. China. Yeah, well, because of the Opium War and the fact that Jardines then passed their business over to one of the partners who made up the Augustine herd. So they handled that business for, I think, maybe two years. What, so Jardines pulls out of, yeah, of China? Yeah, the British companies were no longer allowed to trade with China. So they had to find someone to handle their business. And they asked, because uh, they wanted to keep it going, their connections going, of course, all their customers, etc. And so it then became part of the Augustine herd business. And then when the Opium War was over, they gave it back to Jardines. And I think they still did some trading in opium, but it, but from what I've read, it's mentioned very rarely. So I, I suspect that they didn't want to offend Jardines, and they left Jardines free reign to carry on with their opium business, more or less unimpeded. The other thing that the herds did was they brought swires, Butterfield and Swire, to China. That's interesting because here you have an American company which becomes the agent for a British company. But they brought them over, and they were their agent for Hong Kong, by that time they were uh, very busy in Hong Kong, for Hong Kong and China, I think until 1856, when Butterfield and Swire decided to set up on their own, and then they went their own way. Um, and there was some rivalry, particularly on the shipping side between the herds and the swires. The herds claimed the swires pinched their shipping manager, and that was the start of the decline of their shipping business and also aided in the decline of their business in general. And I, I did happen to be introduced several years ago to Adrian Swire and, and, and I couldn't let this brief meeting go without bringing this issue up and he was very unsympathetic, he said well that's business <laughs> uh, so obviously in those days business was just as tough as it is today, you, uh, no, no one had any time for anyone else, but, but on the other hand 
the relationship between Jardines and, and the herds was very, very good and continued to be very good. And in fact, the Bristol Hong Kong History Project, I've sponsored a PhD candidate for that, who's a Canadian, interestingly. And his project is to examine the relations between the American and British China traders. At least that was what his project started off as. I'm not, I'm not sure whether it's how it's going to go on, but that was what he was looking to do. So, so that would be quite interesting because I'm sure there were, there were friendships, there were rivalries and this sort of thing. And you see, the interesting thing was the American companies all went bankrupt, all of them, and the British companies survived. And the American companies blamed it on British favour, and the government favoured. And I think it was Augustine Heard gave a lecture in the 1890s called Old China and New. And this was a time when the Chinese were very unpopular with the Americans. Uh, and I can't remember the reason for it anyway. But in his lecture, he gave a very strong defence of the Chinese and he said as trading partners they were exemplary he said we traded with them through some very difficult times when there were difficult relationships between the foreigners and the Chinese he said we never lost a penny of money they never tried to cheat us we all went bankrupt of our own fault um, and it was the British companies were much better at trading with China, or did it much better in the in the latter years than we did. So, the, uh, so very interesting. Yeah. Yes, it yes, interesting. it's but it's also so. I mean, it's, it's so many factors, isn't there? I mean, it, it was interesting that you said that Heard set up quite early on in Hong Kong doing insurance as, as one of the issues. I mean, it would be interesting to look at, and I'm sure the archives have them, or the archive in America, one of these early insurance, you know, what, oh, what would it say? It would say, you know, if your tea falls off the ship or right, if yes, it sinks. Sure yes, yeah. yes, yeah. But, uh, it's, I mean, that, that, that herd archive, I did a rough calculation estimating how many pages were on each reel of microfilm. And my calculation was that there are about between half a million and three quarters of a million pages of documents in the Heard archive, of which 100,000 are letters. So probably there are four to 600,000 pages of accounting documents. So in that, there must be some very interesting documents like insurance contracts and other contracts. There's some very, very interesting information about how trade was conducted in China and in Hong Kong. How long did it take if you had good winds? How long would you have said it took from, to get from Ipswich to in America to to China. Back of might have something like six six weeks or eight weeks, something some, something like that. Not too long, tolerable. Then gradually, firms started switching over to steam. Yes, yeah. I mean, what was interesting again, Augustine had um, was a very honest person. He he analysed why they went bankrupt, and I learned quite a lot then about the sort of the nature of business relations, etc. You see, in the early days, when these China trade companies were doing business with China, banks didn't exist out here. Banks came in, I think, probably the late 1850s, early 1860s. HSBC was set up in 1865. And so the China trade companies acted as banks to their clients in China. But when the banks came in, then the China companies didn't have to rely on being financed um, by the companies they were buying off. And that gave them much more opportunity to go direct to the merchants in Europe, in America, and use bank finance uh, to finance that. So then they became gradually more and more competitors to the traditional China trade companies. And then the next thing that gave 
the China companies an advantage um, was the advent of the telegraph. And the telegraph meant that you could get information very quickly to China, and it meant that everyone had the information at the same time. And then you could make your business decisions based on it. And so that then took another foot away from the stool of the foreign China trade companies. And then the other thing was, for herds in particular, was the advent of steam. And the herds were just too slow. So they started to discover that by the time they got their cargoes out here, uh, everyone had bought what they wanted because they'd come out on steamships. Um, so, so that put a dent in their business. And then the final thing was that as their business went down, they were very reluctant to change their style of living. So they would not cut their expenses. <laughs> but they were also, the, one of the reasons they went bankrupt was their agent in America was basically defrauding them. And he was using their money to invest in other ventures in America. And unfortunately, he invested in a lot of bad ventures. And in the end, he couldn't pay their bills. They couldn't recycle their capital. So all those reasons, two of them, I suppose, were to do with themselves and the other two were general conditions that affected particularly the American companies, uh, but all companies. They didn't, you know, as you were saying on these uh, Trans-Pacific trips, they didn't actually swap over to steam fast enough to be competitive. But they do get involved in local steam trade in China. Yes, and also what they call the coastal steam trade, which included uh, Southeast Asia. During the Second Opium War, John Hurd, and this was very close to when he was going to retire back to America, decided that and it, was, it would probably didn't take much rocket science to figure out that uh, the British were going to win the Opium War and they are going to ask for more treaty port concessions. So he then had a, a river steamer built in China called the Fire Dart, and it arrived not long after the hostilities had finished. And then this so is. So, when are we talking about? Well, we're talking about 1861. He then sent it up and he went on it himself, and they, they went port by port along the Yangtze River, and they bought a whole lot of cargo that they thought might be of interest to these river ports. And herds were the first trading company to go and do this business. Then they evolved that simply into a shipping business where they bought goods for other China trade companies uh, up and down the Yangtze. And that was that was very profitable. And they earned to profits of about £200,000 a year when that business became more mature. Uh, which so what was would a, you, if you were aboard the fire dart, what would you have taken up to the ports of the Yangtze? I can't remember what they took up. They took up all sorts of things. I think quite a few of them were the wrong things. That, I think that's why they then left it to other people to do. And, and they, were, they were very happy to take their cargoes for them, made a very, a very lucrative business. So you've got this fire dart steamship that, that, that goes up to the Yangtze, and that is incredibly challenging. I, I've got this impression, you know, when, when they're swapping over from sail to steam, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? You've got to, you've got to judge how much coal you would have had permanently somebody shoveling the coal in or several people yeah abso absolutely yes yes it was a whole i mean a whole new technology with a sailing ship you don't need to take any fuel fuel is there well most of the time anyway so yes there must have been a lot of adjustments uh, they had to make that's probably why maybe the herds were slow to adopt it but on the other hand they were pioneers they were pioneers in going up the yangtze river they were the first company to trade with thailand uh, was Siam, as it was known in those days. And they were the first uh, company to trade with Japan and set up a, a company in Japan in 1861, 1862. My thanks to George Cotherley, talking there on his ancestors, the American trading family, the Herds. 
One of Augustine Hurd's nephews, George Washington Hurd Jr., was also a prolific writer and excellent observer of life. In a later programme, I'll also be talking to author Gillian Bickley about George Washington Hurd's travels in China and Japan that have been produced in the book Through American Eyes, the journals of George Washington Farley Hurd. In next week's programme, businesswoman Mohini Gidamol tells me about growing up in the Philippines before she came to Hong Kong and was the later founder of the luxury goods business Townhouse, which started off in a 200-square-feet shop in 1969 in the then-new Ocean Terminal in Sa We are Cindy's and we are Bibans. You know, we have a category of Bibans and Amals and, um, and the Brahmins, as you know, they're more of the religious class. And uh, the Bibans are more trading people. So we left India because we wanted to trade. Well, those who were judges and lawyers who were Amals, they stayed on because they stayed on as teachers, lawyers, judges, whatever, doctors. They're more professionals. We were traders, basically. And that was Moeni Gidamol, who you'll be able to hear more of in next week's programme. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs> 